Good Monday evening to all my fellow one-on-one history podcast listeners. I hope all of you um, have had a good Monday, and what do you know, we're now on to Tuesday here soon, but I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. You know, the last time I was on the air, uh, there was a lot to talk about, especially since uh, 1774, there was just so much going on during that year, especially um, a lot of adversity. Uh, The people of Massachusetts, most notably, were in uh, having to um, suffer tremendously as a result of uh, Parliament's passage of those intolerable acts, or what we refer to as the Coercive Acts. And it wasn't just one piece of legislation, um, but the Coercive Acts obviously were a multiple um, set of uh, legislative um, matters that had long-term uh, consequences on uh, the people of Massachusetts, most notably the Government Act to the um, Port Act. I would have to say the Port Act was the one that probably um, was the straw that broke the camel's back when the Port of Boston was closed. I mean, I can't imagine how many people's livelihoods were uh, destroyed. Uh, And then not just the Port of Boston closing, but then relocating the government uh, of Massachusetts to Salem, uh, which is north of Boston, and that was where the um, temporary uh, port of Massachusetts itself was. And then, of course, the Government Act pretty much uh, prohibited the uh, lower house from being able to elect uh, the council, who uh, served as the, um, what do you call it, upper echelon of um, the governor's, uh, what do you call it, ranking body. In other words, the council of men would have been the ones who would have advised the governor on on what to support, what to oppose, what to reconsider. So there, you know, when you have those kinds of things taken from you, it really is um, a loss of uh, security. It's a loss of uh, freedom of sorts. So, um, and then uh, to make matters, I wouldn't say worse, actually better in a sense, 1774 also shed some good light that Congress was able to convene in Philadelphia. And while there were those who weren't really completely sold on wanting to separate from England, they still were able to come together from uh, 12 of the 13 colonies, and as I mentioned from uh, Friday night's, this past Friday's uh, podcast, about how Georgia was the only one of the 13 colonies not present because Georgia was fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. But the fact that 12 of the 13 colonies came together and met, and as John Adams, you know, noted in his uh, journal, you know, here men from 12 colonies who are meeting one another for the first time, you know, they're coming to understand that not all of them have the same traditions, customs, the same uh, heritage upbringing. So, yes, it's one thing for 12 um, um, colonies to come to come to this uh, gathering in Philadelphia. The bigger question is, is are, 12, are all 12 colonies going to leave um knowing that uh, they were able to accomplish some things and come to a resolution that, okay, we're going to see how England responds to our um, inquiries 
And if she doesn't respond and doesn't take an interest in our um, inquiries, then we will reconvene um, as a governing body on um, at the beginning of May in 1775. So there's a lot of... Um, Still a lot of uncertainty that is uh, looming, but at the same time, 12 colonies have come together to lay um, what I probably might call 101 uh, foundations for, um, for what will lie ahead in the future. But as of right now, folks, many of the delegates who attended that first Continental Congress gathering in Philadelphia, they're not um, sold on separation just yet. I think it's fair to say that many of them Want, want to reconcile with England. But when you look at the leaders in Massachusetts, like John and Samuel Adams to John Hancock, Paul Revere, and the person whom we've been talking about in this podcast, Dr. Joseph Warren, they all know deep down inside that it's only a, a short matter of time before the inevitable will happen. That is going face-to-face an open um, battlefield with the mightiest empire in the world. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, delegates from 12, co- from 12 uh, colonies uh, gathered, and I think the biggest uh, success from that first Continental Congress gathering was that all 12 colonies came together to to um, support the, uh, what do you call it, boycott of imported British goods coming into America. That was probably the biggest step forward, the biggest 101 step going forward that would eventually lead to the separation from England. Not the ultimate reason, but a, a starting um, reason, just one of a handful of reasons, but this is the starting one. This is the building block. Of course, taxation without representation would be one of those reasons, but it wasn't the number one reason. Well, if you're a loyalist, and you are obviously loyal to the crown, you're basically loyal to king and country, how do you, um, uh, what, do, what is your take on what the Continental Congress has done? Well, if you're a loyalist, you're going to disapprove of what the Continental Congress did in Philadelphia. They not just so much by convening as one governing body, but enforcing an all-out boycott on imported British goods coming into America. So the bottom line is the loyalists in colonial America, not just in Massachusetts, but loyalists in any of the other 12 colonies, no matter how big or small their populations are, they uh, strongly disapproved of of how the Continental Congress in Philadelphia came together to enforce an all-out boycott on imported British goods. So, uh, loyalists basically saw this as acts of treason. Of course, we all know what treason usually refer to, refers to as a, um, a crime being, you know, no longer loyal to your country. Well, of course, in the eyes of loyalists, those who are... Um, in their eyes, enemies to the uh, crown, that is, taking up arms against the crown, really are uh, traitors. 
But many of these, but as I said earlier, a good handful of the delegates, though, in Philadelphia are still hoping for reconciliation with England. So it is fair to say that this is even a double-edged sword onto itself. However, it is fair to say that those delegates who want reconciliation with England, they are keeping a very mindful um, watch on this. In other words, they can't expect a miracle overnight, but they do hope that... uh, that over the next seven months that uh, that King George III and uh, his ministry along with Parliament will come to the realization that, hey, we have greatly overstepped our boundaries with the colonies and we should find ways to come up with reconciliation um, measures that will um, help win back the trust and respect of the 12 co- of the colonies. All that's wishful thinking, but uh, the reality is that that does not happen on the side of England. So, next question. Did King George III come to see violence as something being inevitable? Well, what I mean by violence here is that uh, bloodshed between uh, the colonists and the British soldiers who are not only in colonial America or in the colonies, but an eventual perhaps an eventual uh, battle or two on an open va- battlefield. Uh, yes, he knew he did. King George III himself did come to see violence as something that was being, that was inevitable. Matter of fact, he was quoted in November of 1774 saying the following, the new England governments are in a state of rebellion. Okay. When I th- when we think of new England, what colonies do we think of folks? Well, besides Massachusetts, there's Connecticut, There's Rhode Island, and then there's New Hampshire. Now, I know many of you all are probably thinking, why not New York? Well, believe it or not, New York was actually um, referred to as more of a northern-slash-middle colony. Uh, But when I think of uh, New England, I tend to think of the states that are right along along the coastal waterway of, of the Atlantic Ocean. So, yes, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, and uh, Rhode Island. So, um, as I said a moment ago, how uh, King George III was quoted as saying the New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Uh, George III saw New England as the epicenter of violence. And what I mean by the epicenter is that it's the main uh, focal point or focal area where so much uh, conflict and um, bad tension is taking place. And the people in the New England region, as you all can well imagine, are not wanting to submit to any kind of authority. They didn't want anything to do with procedures that were non-conforming. So in other words, if you don't, if you don't support uh, the idea of being taxed without your consent then why would you want to uh, conform to policies where everyday being you as an everyday person do not get a proper say? I wouldn't. So come October 27th of 1774, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress appoints a committee of safety being an executive body designed to handle all military affairs. Now, all of you should know what provincial means. It's not the 
actual government, but a temporary makeshift government before an official permanent one comes into place. So Dr. Joseph Warren would become one of nine members to um, head up the uh, Committee of uh, Safety. And from November 2nd of 1774 to January 25th of 1775, Joseph Warren did not miss one single meeting. He became more active in the Boston Committee of Correspondence as well as Boston town meetings. He really was part of every key political organization in the Bay Colony. And as I said from last from the previous night's podcast, and I'll say it again right now, Joseph Warren doesn't miss out on anything. And in a lot of ways, that's good. But could you say on one hand that it could be a bad thing that he is involved in, in so many things? Well, we will get to that point here soon, but I, I could tell you right now that, um, that his being involved in everything will cause um, others around him that are dear to um, wonder about his safety. Not just his safety in the community, but his safety when it comes to um, the enemy. Of course, the enemy being... Um, the British uh, troops, the British military's uh, presence uh, throughout uh, Boston. Now, as I also mentioned from the previous night's podcast, that uh, a year after Dr. Warren's wife Elizabeth died, being in 1773, he uh, reconnected with a, with a, um, a woman whom he had known for many years, Mercy Scolay. And did Mercy Scolay bring happiness and normalcy to the Warren home? She absolutely did. And she was vigorous, and she also vigorously supported his public actions. Remember, Mercy Scolay comes from a very well-to-do merchant family. Her father is an ardent Whig. And by having a family member who's a very ardent Whig, that gives her... Um, I don't know if I would say maybe boyfriend at the time being Joseph Warren, but her companion would be a better uh, way to, uh, to describe the relationship. Her companion or her significant other being Joseph Warren, all the more support. You know, it's one thing for families to know one another back in those times, but it didn't mean just because you knew the Joneses or the Smiths, it didn't mean they were automatically on the same page as you were politically. Well, uh, here's a, another bonus question to consider. And here's here we're going to get into the heart of this, because uh, I did mention it earlier. Was Joseph Warren's ever-growing presence as a radical insurgent a constant source of worry to those dear to him? Uh, the answer is yes. The crown considered a vast majority of his political organizations that he was directly connected to, not only um, as being illegal, but the actions he took to be treasonous. And remember, folks, it was one thing to um, question the king, but if you questioned the king, it could result in going to jail, 
we saw what happened to John Wilkes, who was a ardent um, Whig sympathizer. He and, of course, Isaac Barry, who would go on to coin the term Sons of Liberty. Those two men took a lot of risks by um, supporting the colonists, but John Wilkes, sadly, went to jail for accusing King George III, all in the name of the fact that he did not like how George III and his ministry were treating the colonies. But because he badmouthed them, it resulted in jail. In jail time, that is. So, um, how did... Here's another bonus question to think about. How did General Thomas Gage become aware of Joseph Warren's activities? Well, it turns out that a fellow former Whig member who turned pro-Tory slash loyalist by the name of Dr. Benjamin Church would become the one who provided General Gage with information proving that Warren himself was, in fact, the ringleader behind all of these, um, what do you call it, radical movements, um, all in the name of expressing um, defiance towards the Crown and Parliament. Why did Dr. Benjamin Church betray the Whig camp? I read this, um, I found out about this recently in um, David Hackett Fisher's, or in, uh, David, uh, in a book that I uh, read um, called uh, Paul Revere's Ride, which was written about 25 years ago uh, by a fellow named uh, David Hackett uh, Fisher. And it was a very, very well-written book that uh, truly does explain the true meaning behind what Paul Revere accomplished. And, of course, a lot of us for years were convinced that he just went out on a ride one night and warned everybody that the British were coming, but uh, actually that's not true. Uh, But the bottom line is that um, Dr. Benjamin Church's name was mentioned in that book, and it turned out that he was uh, influenced by money to um, join the uh, ranks of the Tory loyalist group all in the name of betraying everyone else whom thought that um, that Dr. Uh, Church was um, a trustworthy fellow. Did, jo- did Joseph Warren or any of his other um, compatriots within the Whig movement um, ever find out who was responsible for leaking information? Unfortunately, they never did. And that's the sad part. But the good news is that Joseph Warren still is um, going above and beyond to get the word out to people um, who, in some cases, aren't even sure what group to be a part of. Most historians know, folks, that um, how it really was distributed, of course, it might also depend on where you're living, but some historians are convinced that people were divided into thirds in terms of their loyalties. One-third of the uh, colonial America uh, population would have been considered patriots. The other third would have been loyalists. And then the other third would have been neutrals. If you ask me which group would have been the most vulnerable, I would say those who were neutral. Think about it. 
there was always a 50% chance that you either could side with the with uh, patriots and a 50% chance you would side with loyalists. And whatever information you shared, whether it was on, to the patriots or to the loyalists, it could either make or break for your, not only for your individual's um, safety, but that of your families. So just because you know people, it doesn't mean they're always in the same camp as you are. And just because you share information with one person, it doesn't mean that they're going to keep that information secret. So these were um, time. definitely, I would have to say these were times of uncertainty when it came to even mutual trust with one another. But thank heavens that uh, Joseph Warren does have a lot of trust in men like Paul Revere, John and Samuel Adams, to uh, James Otis and um, John Hancock. Just to name a handful of um, prominent uh, Massachusetts men. Now, I should also point out what's interesting about uh, General uh, Thomas Gage is that he actually married an American woman that was also mentioned from uh, Paul Revere's ride. And his wife, her name was Margaret Kemble Gage. What's unique about her is that she was from New Jersey. And I think it is fair to say that even... Um, Men and women, just because, uh, let's say, a man came from England, it didn't automatically mean he would have automatic, automatically married a woman from England. It turns out that um, gen that uh, General Gage, or before he became General Gage, uh, when he married uh, Margaret Kemble, she came from a very well-to-do um, family in New Jersey. But historians now know that Margaret Gage, or Margaret Kemble Gage, rather, did provide sensitive information to the uh, Sons of Liberty. And what I can tell you is this, is that uh, General Gage did send his wife back to England just before fighting broke out at Lexington and Concord and eventually Bunker Hill. I also can tell you this, is, is that after Bunker Hill, General Gage would go back to England and his marriage was never the same. Basically, his marriage was estranged. Historians don't know, they can't confirm 100% for sure just how much information uh, his wife gave to the Sons of Liberty, but it obviously was enough that it did prevent other uh, prominent um, men like Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, John Hancock, to Dr. Joseph Warren from, um, from being taken as... Uh, what we might call as uh, hostages. In other words, had any of those men been captured at certain moments before uh, the shots heard around the world took place, they could have easily been um, transported back to England, tried for any offense that the king felt would have uh, been uh, warranted upon them and it would have resulted in jail time and perhaps ex uh, execution. So it's just a classic example right there of how uh, just because, you know, one may have one, one, uh, one person being, say, the wife whose um, husband is in the British Army, it doesn't mean that the wife's loyalties or allegiances will stay 100% on the side of England. And we've also learned that it's also it was the same case even on the Patriot side that there were uh, people who um, 
who did turn a blind uh, cheek or a blind eye and gave inf and sold information to um, those who were actually uh, aiding and abetting uh, the British. If any of you all haven't seen uh, Turn, uh, that's a great uh, movie, uh, or not movie, but a miniseries. My wife and I watched it um, a few years back. It's about George Washington's uh, secret spy ring. Well, not to, sorry to have gotten off track, but you know that information was very uh, relevant, to say the least. Now, what's important about February 1st, 1775? The Second Massachusetts Provincial Congress convenes in Cambridge, uh, just on the outskirts of Boston, where Harvard is uh, located, and Joseph Warren is handling all the fiscal and military matters, including appropriating funds for, Massachusetts, for Massachusetts delegates to what eventually would be the Second Continental Congress. Now, we're, here we are at the start of February, and those who attended that First Continental Congress are still hoping that for a, a miracle, many of them are in hopes that Britain will uh, find a way to reconcile with us. But Joseph Warren is smart enough and that he's not taking any chances. He's, um, he's very shrewd and clever, and he's got to have a backup plan in play. Okay, we do need to um, appropriate some funds if in the event a Second Continental Congress takes place. We're going to have to pay for, um, for X number of delegates to go... Um, back uh, to uh, Philadelphia to convene again. Now, uh, here's a bonus question to think about. This is a very important one. Did Joseph Warren receive threats from British soldiers? The answer is yes. These threats were verbal, and I would not take them very lightly. The, these verbal threats ranged from um, assassination remarks to being called a rebel to, to being told he would meet the fate of a rebel to being confronted by British soldiers nearby who yelled the following, Go on, Warren. You will soon come to the gallows. You know, if I was Joseph Warren... You know, it's one thing to hear these threats, but had Joseph Warren broken down and started um, started crying or started um, wailing at the top of his lungs, then guess what would have happened? The British would have already known that they had gotten him. In other words, they would have uh, been able to have broken down his um, his self discipline, his self. Um, decency, self-respect. It's one thing to be intimidated by someone, and maybe for Joseph Warren, the objective was not to win that day, but he also had to keep his head high to show those British forces that, hey, look, yeah, you can intimidate me all you want, but you're not going to get the better of me. I'm going to hold my ground, and I'm going to show to you all that I still have what it takes to put up a fight with you guys. Not just with me, but everybody else around me who is on my side. Now, on March 6th of 1775, Joseph Warren will deliver a speech at the Old South Meeting House in Boston while there was a great number of people in attendance at this event, especially those on the Whig side. 
there were many in attendance who were armed redcoats, whose intentions were to catch Warren himself off guard. Now, what I find interesting about this is not so much the date and all that, but I do know that the day before, being March 5th, uh, was the five-year anniversary of the infamous Boston Massacre. I will say this, the people of Massachusetts, especially in Boston, are doing a great job holding a, a vigil every year honoring those who died. I also find it hard to believe that uh, back in March of this year, just before the coronavirus really hit full scale worldwide, that back on March 5th of this year, that, that date marked the 250th anniversary of the massacre. I find it hard to believe that it's been 250 years since that incident took place. Of course, a lot has changed in the world since that time, but I do know that the Boston Massacre truly was the first event of its time in colonial America where so much violence occurred in one night where it resulted in the loss of um, multiple lives that were um, attributed to uh, gun violence. And as I said from the previous night, from a previous night's uh, podcast, you know, the word massacre itself is nothing in today's time. It doesn't make it right, but it just isn't. But when five people died from gun violence in 1770, that was a big deal. I mean, in, in one setting. It's one, it may have been one thing for one person to have died from gun violence, but when you have five people who die, yeah, it's a very uh, life-changing uh, experience. Because people, when p people died back in those days, it was usually from disease. And it could have resulted in an epidemic, or in some cases, depending on where you were in the world, perhaps a pandemic. But nobody in 1770, up until the Boston Massacre, or up until the Boston Massacre of 1770, nowhere in colonial America did you hear that five or more people died in one setting because of gun violence. So anyways, this speech that Joseph Warren um, is um, giving is honors those who died five years earlier from that infamous Boston Massacre, but he's also... He's also um, taking on a variety of other topics to discuss. But while he's discussing those matters, British officers in the, um, in the crowd or in the audience were um, what we might think of as, in today's time as behaving raucously or immature. What they were doing is uh, they were um, making a barrage of hisses directly at Warren, trying to scare him. But he obviously didn't flinch. And again, he didn't break down. He might be a good example right here in this case of survival of the fittest. Hey, you can, uh, you can hiss, you can make these threats towards me, but I'm not going to flinch, I'm not going to fall for your bait. His speech, besides honoring those who died five years earlier from the Boston Massacre, his speech focused on encroachment of American liberties, most notably like free speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble and petition, to uh, how England herself was responsible for causing so much hardship throughout the 13 colonies. And he also... Um, 
encouraged the people of Boston to support the Suffolk Resolves. And of course, as we all know, those Suffolk Resolves had to do, in large part, it was a counter um, a counter response measure to um, the infamous intolerable acts that Parliament had uh, passed. This speech, believe it or not, was 45 minutes long. It doesn't sound like a long time, but this 45-minute speech alone, historians now know, bore a lot of striking resemblance to what Thomas Jefferson composed a year later in 1776. Of course, we all know 1776, Declaration of Independence. Now, given that Joseph Warren uh, discussed a lot of um, important um, matters in his uh, what would be known as the War as Warren's March Massacre speech, as for the current state of tension between uh, Massachusetts and um, England very little or, or hardly even anything was improved. I think even Warren himself knew that that was to be expected. Now, if that's bad enough, uh, British soldiers go to John Hancock's home and basically vandalize his home. And then if that's, wor- if that's bad, a couple days after attacking John Hancock's home, a group of British officers went about stripping a man's clothes, and not just stripping his clothes, but they tarred and feathered him. You know, tarring and feathering was a very, very brutal way to punish people. And, of course, both sides were guilty of doing it. Uh, When I usually think of tarring and feathering, I often think of uh, the Patriots, tarring and feathering those who were uh, tax collectors because tax collectors were despised upon because many in Boston who engaged in uh, what he called destroying tax collectors' homes felt that the tax collectors were reaping in all the money to give to people in England who were um, high up on the, uh, st- what do you call it, high up on the um, scale where perhaps the uh, taxes that were paid that would go back to England would only benefit the wealthiest 1% to 2% of society, while the vast majority of uh, people, not just in British society, but in colonial America society in Boston, would be the ones um, bearing the, um, bearing, what do you call it, it took on the uh, the brunt of it. In other words, they were paying out more taxes but not getting anything back in return. So, um, another, uh, but yes, tarring and feathering was a very dangerous thing. I'm glad that we don't have that in today's uh, time. But uh, another question to think about this too. You know, everybody wonders, uh, well, here Joseph Warren has become such a uh, hot target for the British. What about Samuel Adams and John Adams? Are they considered to be enemies of the king? Yes, they are. But Joseph Warren's continuous presence in the spotlight places him as as the primary target for Britain. You know, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, and even Paul Revere himself, have have spoken... But there is a difference between those men versus Joseph Warren. 
And it's not all for the, for bad reasons, but what I do know is that Samuel Adams and John Hancock, for example, are not out there making speeches left and right. In other words, they're not in the limelight on a daily basis like Joseph Warren is. After all, Joseph Warren, on the Patriot side, he is the go-to guy. I mean, he's the one that's keeping everything in check. And if it weren't for him, I mean, I'm not here to say that uh, John Hancock or Samuel Adams couldn't fill those, couldn't fill the, what you call the void or the shoes. But there's something very unique about Joseph Warren. Um, I think it's fair to say that even before George Washington became the commander of the Continental Army, Joseph Warren is the George Washington. He is that um, leading force that keeps everybody together. Some people just have a natural talent for being able to mobilize forces from all directions, and that's Joseph Warren for you. So yes, Samuel Adams and John Hancock and basically any other leading figure who is against the king and parliament, yes, are, are automatically considered to be threats. But in the case of Joseph Warren, because of his visibility and because of all of his involvement in countless uh, committees and his presence and him making speeches left and right about just how bad Parliament and the Crown are, I could see how that's going to gain a lot of bad publicity in the sense that, hey, George III and Parliament are going to have to come up with some plan, not only to monitor this fella, but to come up with a plan that would allow, say, General Gage and his men to either, kid, to either um, what do you call it? basically just uh, find a way to take this guy out. So, uh, did Joseph Warren know over time that his life was in danger? Uh, the answer is yes. In February of 1775, Warren sent Mercy Scolay and his uh, children to live outside of Boston, a.k.a. the countryside. And this was a very smart move because um, in a short amount of time, especially come April of 1775, when I tend to think of that time, I tend to think of um, most notably April 19th of 1775, the battles of Lexington and Concord, or Concord, a.k.a., as Ralph Waldo Emerson would put it years later after that, after the American Revolution, he often referred to um, to the famous saying as the shots heard round the world. So before Lexington and Concord take place, uh, Joseph Warren made a bold move in relocating Mercy Scolay and his children to live outside of Boston. But what I find uh, very hard to believe, and this is sad, is that prior to April 19th of 1775, when Joseph Warren got Mercy Scolay and the children out of harm's way. He bid farewell to all of them, but little did he know that this would be the last time he would ever see all of them. You know, remember this, folks. We don't have telephones back then. We don't have um, AOL Instant Messenger, so obviously there are no computers. 
The only way Joseph Warren can even communicate with Mercy Scolay and his children or even his brothers or anybody in his family, for that matter, the only way he can communicate with them is by letter. And, who, and for all we know, if he wrote a letter, say, tomorrow, for example, it could be maybe up, it could be a week until uh, perhaps that letter was received by any one of his family members. And who knows what could have transpired in that week's time. You know, it's so easy to take for granted in today's world where, yes, we have access to email, we have access to texting, we have access to calling people, and while all of that's great, we, we, need, we do need to remind ourselves of what people didn't have in 1775. But you know something? I, I have to applaud our forefathers and those who lived in that time for how they managed to survive without modern-day conveniences like a telephone and email and, and text. You know, they wrote letters, and yet they still managed to, to get by. Even, you know, and they weren't ashamed of reading the news, even if it was, say, three weeks old. They were just happy to know um, that they had access to a newspaper. Of course, they didn't get newspapers every on a daily basis, but whatever they they uh, got that was uh, received to them, whether it was at a tavern or at some other uh, public building where people convened, when they did read the news, even if it was two to three weeks old, it was it was a big deal because people wanted to know what else was going on, um, not only in the areas outside of Boston, but in other um, cities like Philadelphia, New York, and perhaps as far south as Charleston, South Carolina. So we do have to be reminded of just how different the world was in the 18th century when it came to not only just getting the news, but we, but if in this, in this case for Joseph Warren, knowing that, of course, little did he know it would be the last time he would ever see um, his companion, Mercy Scolay, and his own children alive, and not, and not having the chance to, you know, see them again. I, I, it's just that, I mean, he had to think about their safety, but still, I can't imagine being in his shoes. It's a, um, it's a very, um, it's a very hard way to describe it, but it's it, it's just very uh, it's all very unsurreal, but yet that's that's just the way it was. So we definitely have to appreciate how uh, people um, dealt with those um, unpredictable situations. Well, here's a, another bonus question to think about. What legislation caused Bostonians to suffer for quite an extensive time period? The Coercive Acts. Remember the, the, the Port Act, the Government Act? Now, given that Joseph Warren was head of the Committee of Safety, what were some of his official duties? Organizing and arming a, the provincial militias? to developing an ever-expanding spy network. Now remember this, folks. Joseph Warren can't do all of this intelligence gathering on his own. So he's going to need to have people who are willing to step up to the plate and that is um, pose as everyday citizens doing, going about doing their business 
throughout Boston, but also going undercover. Because remember, folks, the British uh, military presence is very strong in Boston. There's about 4,000 troops at best. So you've got you've to find ways to intercept um, information. And the British were good on their end with this, too. Um, and historians know that many um, citizens in Boston stepped up to the plate and were able to relay information to Dr. Joseph Warren that was so critical that in some instances um, attacks were thwarted. That is, uh, British attacks on not just random people, but on buildings, and and not just uh, buildings, but uh, perhaps breaking into buildings to steal sensitive information. So the bottom line is you, you couldn't assume anything. And in order to prevent... Um, what would be the equivalent of what we know today as terrorist attacks, people have to step up to the plate and um, be their own form of, um, they have to be their own intelligence officers. You know, it's amazing just how much work Warren, Joseph Warren was involved in, whether it was from Freemasons, Sons of Liberty, North End Caucus, Boston Community of Correspondence, Massachusetts Committee of Safety, to Massachusetts Provincial of Congress, this placed him high atop. No other Whig leader accomplished as much as Warren himself did over a short period of time. Yes, John Hancock and Samuel Adams were involved in some of these committees, but they weren't involved. They weren't involved. I mean, they were involved in some of them, but not all of them. Is that all right? Sure. But if anybody was involved in everything, thank goodness it was Dr. Joseph Warren. Because for all of his knowledge and leadership, all of those committees benefited by having him. And what kind of people made up Whig leadership? Well, I, I think this is very important to know, to note, or, or to just uh, take into consideration. Well, you've got people whose backgrounds range from being a mechanic to merchants, artisans, lawyers, masons, printers, laborers. Even your mariners, or what we refer to as your seamen. So basically, being a part of the Whig leadership group wasn't confined to just one profession. Everybody um, had a had it played a vital role, regardless of their profession. And that's that to me is great because it promotes a great um, broadband of diversity that Joseph Warren himself can count on because, you know, it's one thing to be a lawyer, but just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean that uh, lawyers alone are the only group of people who are making up le uh, the leadership. Lawyers might have to depend on um, mechanics for, um, for various repairs. Lawyers would probably need to depend on uh, merchants who can provide uh, Mr. Jones, being the lawyer and his family, with um, valuable goods that the family um, would need to have in order to um, get by um, from one season after another. So basically, all of these, um, what do you call it, tradespeople coming together as one is essential because, think about this, folks, none of these people can afford to burn bridges with one another. You know, yes, you may have some disagreements on a few things, but but in the end, you all of these people are going to need one another for support. 
without without everyone coming together, then how can Joseph Warren's dream of um, becoming separate, of becoming uh, independent from England, how can that um, notion of becoming independent from England become an actual reality? It can't if people aren't willing to come together. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and it's great to be back on the air. Uh, when I come back on next, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Lexington and Concord, and that will definitely be worth uh, sharing. Uh, from the book I read recently, uh, Paul Revere's Ride, I learned a lot more about Lexington and Concord than I had uh, previously known before. But that's the beauty with this stuff when it comes to the American Revolution. Just when we think we've learned something or we thought we knew everything there was to know, uh, guess what? We're always um, being proven, we're always being proved the opposite. In other words, we think we know everything and then all of a sudden we get uh, taught something that was totally different and perhaps it's all the more relevant than what we were taught beforehand. So, um, that's, of course, that's the beauty of history right there. Uh, well, again, thank you to all my fellow 101 podcast listeners for listening tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, take care.